0: Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver. This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do. And eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact. And it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Pass Gas by Donut Media. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast. Pass Gas. Unless you daily drive a vintage muscle car, chances are that the car you're driving today is without question far safer than a similar car from decades past. Even though automakers introduced the seatbelt in the 1950s, they weren't an accepted part of the car until the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration started requiring them in 1968. At this time, I'm going to ask that you your yourself- Even after seatbelts started showing up in cars all over America, only 14% of Americans chose to buckle up until the government began to intervene. And once they did, it quickly became clear that wearing a seatbelt reduces the risk of dying in a crash by nearly 45%. Despite those numbers, Americans were furiously opposed to forced regulations, even if it kept them safe, as opposed to, I don't know, flying through their windshields or being impaled by their steering column. You may think that safety measures would be a popular and easy win for the automobile industry, but it wasn't always that way. Why would the auto industry collude to prevent important environmental pollution control devices? Why were Americans so anti-seatbelt that, as one Michigan legislator called it, they fought for their right to fly through their windshield? Today on Past Gas, the shockingly hard-won safety measures that the auto industry fought against.
1: Best podcast it's about cars it's not
2: about sports. I'm a man I don't need a seatbelt I can just push against the dashboard if I get in an accident
0: yeah dude I don't see why it's so hard to not survive a car accident just grip harder
2: yeah that's what I always say grip
0: harder <laughs> uh, I had a an acquaintance in high school who did not wear a seatbelt and he reasoned that if he got in an accident and flew out the window, that he could flip in the air and land on his feet. I mean, that's pretty sound mm-hmm. though. Yeah, did he ever get to prove it? No, he died. Oh God. What? Not <laughs> kidding. No, he's fine.
1: <laughs> I can't not wear a seatbelt, even if I'm like moving my car around. If I'm driving and I don't have the belt on, I feel like I'm gonna like fly out of my car. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Like that like your your moonroof is gonna sunroof's gonna be open and you're gonna be sucked out the top. Yeah, yeah.
2: that's how I feel. I joked about pushing <laughs> against the dashboard, but that's literally what I told my mom when I was a kid because I didn't want to wear a seatbelt.
0: I don't think when you're young or immature, you don't understand physics. No. No, no. if you when you get into an accident or a collision, all of a sudden you're just at the mercy of of gravity yeah. and and momentum. Everything happens in a 10th of a second.
1: You can flip though.
0: You can flip in the air <laughs> and land on your feet.
1: Dude, do you have a Yokohama mug?
0: I do.
2: Whoa,
1: that's Whoa. cool.
0: It's like matte blue. Where'd you get that? I think this was on the f- on our free uh shelf. Oh man, that's point. cool. Yeah, I think I have a big tumbler too. I can try to find that for you, James, if that's what you'd like. A big tumbler, eh? Yeah, big old thing. So you can you can get like thirty six ounces of coffee straight to the gut in the morning. Yeah, I don't drink coffee. I noticed that just now <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to past gas everybody this week we are talking about automotive safety and the people that tried to prevent it i'm your host nolan joined as always by my co-host uh joe weber going handheld with the microphone this week sorry yeah joe.
2: what's up wink wink nation i'm uh transmitting from a secret base uh ho- stand
0: by and James Pumphrey at the Donut Office.
2: Toot
1: toot, baby, baby. Joe, you look like Henry Rollins,
0: <laughs> ah. <laughs> like holding your mic, you just like yeah.
2: <laughs> I write an op ed in LA Weekly. <laughs> yeah,
0: uh, sa- vehicle safety is, I think, a topic that uh, uh, when we chose this topic, and then when I when we were discussing it this week, I realized how like near and dear. It is to my heart. I think it's like I'm a cautious guy. I'm not a guy that takes big risks all the time like uh, some of my other co-hosts here at the channel. Wait, do you want to unpack that, Nolan? Uh, I'm just saying, <laughs> Job likes to cut corners sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah is risky. They are. I don't know why we put them together on a new show. Because it's going to be magic, baby. <laughs> That's good TV. Oh, it's going to be great TV. Very Tool Party coming soon. Look out for it. They got a great dynamic. Yeah, they I was on set for a little bit. It's going to be great. Anyway, back to vehicle safety. Um I like wearing my seatbelt. I don't think that's a controversial thing. What a dork. <laughs> I I it is dorky. I love wearing a helmet. I uh-huh. think helmets are awesome. Maybe not bike helmets. Bike helmets are, you know, you, you do look like a dork. But a race helmet is sick. You heard it
1: Nolan Sykes says don't wear don't wear a bike helmet.
2: When you're in full race gear and have all the padding and the leathers and the helmet and stuff and the thick boots, you feel like you're in armor. Like you feel, yeah, you so feel like a Gimp, like from pulp fiction. <laughs> yeah, and that makes me feel safe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I to live in a
0: box. <laughs> <laughs> but car safety, I mean it's just improved so much. I have some I have a graph and some a a a spreadsheet in front of me courtesy of the IIHS. The deadliest year for auto safety in the U.S. was 1969. Hell yeah, nice. Yes, the
1: deadliest
0: was... year. <laughs> yeah, Joe, it was.
1: Joe's working on a show called uh, "Model Year," and Joe, that's the title. The of deadliest 1969. year, 1969. Yeah, 1969, the deadliest year.
2: But then, nice in parentheses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: and over 53,000 people died in car accidents that year. However, there was another uh, another year that was very dangerous. Was 1937. There was a lot less deaths in numbers, but 29 people per 100,000 were killed in auto accidents. So those were two of the most dangerous years. Of course, 1969 is going to have more deaths because the population was just way higher. Way more people driving cars. And way more people driving cars. Thank you, James. Um, So the most deaths were in 1969, but the highest deaths per 100,000 people was in 1937.
1: But I feel like in 1937, like... 16% 16% of people who ate at cafeterias died. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like if, you ate, the,
0: if you ate spicy food, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. probably died. Like
1: like 17% of milk drinkers died. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Like yeah the you're stat, right.
1: The stats were just high that year. That was a big stat year for deaths. Yeah.
2: yeah one out of three babies just got thrown out of the hospital window.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The
2: infant building ejection rate was super high. Yeah. Per 100,000 people. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. There's a a prevailing or a a pretty universal complaint among car enthusiasts that cars are getting too big and heavy, which is true. But a lot of that does have to do with safety, with crumple zones and all the engineering and all the extra components that go into making your car safer in a crash. Um, And that's undeniable. You know, cars, they just are heavier. But to harp on that as like one of your only reasons why cars are worse now is just a dumb hill to die on pardon the pun because if you look at this graph from wikipedia of u.s traffic deaths i mean it's just been on a downward downward trend ever since 1969 when they started vastly improving car safety and you know the less people i have to hear about dying in auto accidents i don't ever want to hear about someone that i know or that i'm connected to dying in a crash so i think it's worth it for me
2: yeah i mean i hear you i think i want to do my own research though on this yeah. I feel like okay. uh you know but
0: yeah
1: before I sell my slingshot, <laughs> I wanna do my own research. Oh man. Cause I think me and my slingshot with my head on a swivel is safer safe. than than you. Great visibility. <laughs> I'll give you that.
0: Great visibility. <laughs> that thing
2: sucks, dude. I dude, don't talk <laughs> about my slingshot, bro. <laughs> It would, dude, have you you I mean you drove it for the new car show, right? I
1: drive it every day for my life.
2: It's my <laughs> daily driver. We me and Max took one up to the crest and it was wet
0: and I oh, honestly man. thought i was
2: going to slip off the side of the mountain.
0: Was it a newer one or is it an older yeah, one? It was 2016, yeah. I think. Okay, that's that's like older than the one we tested. The new ones I've heard are a lot better. Um, so I do want to uh, drive a new Polaris Slingshot at some point. It is a funky Polaris, car. Slingshot. I if love you join my Polaris Slingshot. If you want to
1: <laughs> submit to join my very exclusive Slingshot <laughs> Club, uh, you can email us at slingshot at donutmedia.com. That's a real website. Yeah. That's a real
0: right. email account <laughs> that will go to a person. All right. Well, let's get into the story here. Yeah, so today we're not just going to talk about collision safety. We're also going to talk about the safety of your lungs, the safety of breathing. Uh, So first, we're going to talk about emission stuff like the catalytic converter and smog. And then later in the episode, we'll get into the, uh, uh, the, the horrific collision deaths later on in the episode. So make sure you stick around till then. We all know we have a catalytic converter in our car, but where the hell did they come from? Catalytic converter prototypes were first designed in France at the end of the 19th century, when only a few thousand oil cars were on the road. They were later patented by French mechanical engineer Eugène Haudry, who moved to the U.S. in 1930. And as it turns out, Haudry was concerned about air pollution, particularly after early studies of smog in Los Angeles came out, and he decided to found a company called OxyCatalyst.
1: My uncle got all wrapped up in oxycatalyst. It's not good. Yeah. It's not good, man. It ruined your life. He had to sell his Mm -hmm. house. He's like stole a bunch of copper wire from abandoned
0: buildings. (laughs) Audrey first developed catalytic converters for smokestacks, then branched into warehouse forklifts that used low-grade unleaded gasoline. Then, in the mid-1950s, Audrey began to develop catalytic converters for gasoline engines used in cars. By 1973, with the help of engineers like Carl D. Keith, John J. Mooney, Antonio Elazar and Philip Messina at the Engelhard Corporation, the first production catalytic converter was completed. But what is a catalytic converter and how do they work? Well, a catalytic converter is a two-way converter okay, that combines oxygen with carbon monoxide and unburned hydrocarbons. This process produces carbon dioxide and water, which is better for the environment. Basically, it's an emissions control device that converts toxic gases and pollutants into less toxic pollutants. It, it gets really hot. The components inside of it get really hot and they burn off those unburned hydrocarbons.
2: There's some rare earth metals in
0: there, right? They're like platinum or something. There's some platinum. uh there really small amounts of these rare earth metals that are worth a lot. And that's why there's a rash. That's why I steal them off of Priuses. That's right. You go right. out into the dead of night with a single jack. Yep, I jack up the cars and I
1: hack them off. I steal the catalytic converter. Then I sell it to my guy.
2: Yeah. Dude, you're in all the markets. The copper wire market, the cat, <laughs> stolen hey, cat market.
1: Hey, man, I market. love stealing metals.
2: <laughs> it's family business. What, that's what pump
0: do. So the catalytic converter is a, an instrumental big part of um, emissions control these days can imagine what it was like to just walk down the street when like every car was a huge muscle car or a big sedan i know
1: man every time we get an old car uh at the shop or in the office and we start it oh my god it's like you can imagine like it stinks it's awful it just smells so bad and it just smells like gasoline burning not well yeah. and if you just yeah you can imagine like la brea just oh. full of cars like that like you would, like the vi- like it would be like wavy, yeah. like the air would be like yeah. wavy.
0: My dad, he grew up in uh, Long Beach and uh, at the time of these cars, and they would have smog days where you know school was canceled because the air was so bad outside. Oh, god, and if they didn't have smog days, you know, if they didn't, you'd have to go to school, you know, if that threshold wasn't reached and when he was playing football he said his like his lungs would just be on fire cuz you're out oh, you're man. in practice super hot outside but also your your lungs are being attacked by this the smog
1: speaking of smog the climate crisis is well covered these days but let's get a little backstory on it as a concept the word smog A combo of smoke and fog was adopted as a term in 1926 as an official weather condition. And the U.S. Bureau credits Indianapolis for popularizing the word. Okay. I mean, any clock's right twice, right? (laughs) The U.S. Weather Bureau. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yeah. Indianapolis is a fine city. (laughs) despite the late arriving label smog had already been a huge issue in large cities for decades
2: hey i got a pitch for nolan Uh uh-huh for a nickname on this show okay (laughs) can we call you the velvet smog
0: i love it yeah
2: oh that's hard and fitting
0: (laughs) thanks i I guess
1: In New York, the trees in Central Park were shrouded and unhealthy. In St. Louis, hat makers marketed smog-proof hats. And for (laughs) a brief moment in 1929, the Pittsburgh Press ran a front-page campaign to expose polluters in the city. Commercial airline pilots reported seeing skies over broad regions of the U.S. becoming less and less clear, not just over urban areas, but none of these instances compared to the smog issue in our hometown, Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a city designed for smog. Due to the placement of our gorgeous mountains, it's extra difficult for winds to blow away air pollutants. The first smog day on record was in 1943 when visibility dropped to three blocks and hospital rooms filled with people complaining of burning eyes and lungs. The government initially blamed it on a war plant, but after the plant closed, the smog endured. (laughs)
2: they,
1: They were like, it's probably that plant And they're like, good enough for me. And they're like, hey, uh, war's over. That plant closed. This stuff's still going on. They're
2: like, huh. Must be the trolleys.
1: (laughs) In Pasadena at the California Institute of Technology, a biochemistry professor named Ari Hagen-Smith earned the moniker the father of smog. (laughs) (laughs) When he discovered that the, quote, goop in the air as he called it, I think I'd get along with this guy, was a byproduct of unburned (laughs) fuel from cars mixing with oxides of nitrogen, which were then roasted together in the sun. Hey, there's this goop in the air. There's this goop in the air, all right? And I think unburned fuel from cars is mixing with these things called oxides of nitrogen, and then the sun is cooking them, and it makes... A poisonous fog. Yeah. All right. Because of his research, the city formed the Los Angeles County Air Pollution Control District in 1947, the first regulatory body of its kind in the entire U.S. And in 1965, state air quality researchers were the first to precisely measure a car's tailpipe emissions.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is like a basin that we live in. I drive down La Brea to get, I'm not going to get to Los Angeles for you, but La Brea is situated on a hill. Or I go down a big hill, and at the top of the hill, you can see pretty much all of Mid City Los Angeles from there. And most of the time, it's kind of hazy. But yesterday, after it rained, uh, it was it was gorgeous, man. It was so clear. I could see all the way to Beverly Hills perfectly. I could like I could see lights on people's porches, just like five miles away. It was beautiful. But that's just after a while, it's going to start building up again.
1: Yeah, every time it rains, it's like super clear here. And then it doesn't rain very often. So until the next time it rains, it gets foggier and foggier and foggier. And when it rains
2: sometimes, after not raining for a long time, the rain is like dirty. <laughs> I mean, it's like mm-hmm. acid rain. <laughs> but you get out and you're like, oh, I got a you know, free car wash. And then you get outside and there's like brown water all over your car.
1: Well,
0: that's also from the dust.
1: <laughs> Guys, but it's also... <laughs> the sixth most expensive city in the planet. So, you know, it's a real trade off. We can't can't even, if we can't, you know, our lives suck too. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back with more of this story, but first a word from our sponsors.
3: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done. Well, I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, That's A-N-G-I dot com.
0: Well, now you know the facts, dear listener. But what about that conspiracy we mentioned at the top? Well, in January of 1969, the Justice Department brought an antitrust lawsuit against the then big four automakers, American Motors, Chrysler, Ford and General Motors, along with their trade group, the Automobile Manufacturers Association or AMA. The lawsuit claimed that for 16 years, from 1953 until 1969, these companies had conspired to prevent and delay the manufacture and use of pollution control devices, aka catalytic converters. The lawsuit alleged that the automakers purposely decided not to compete on pollution control technology and that no one auto company would move forward with a pollution control technique unless agreed upon by the others. They also moved to buy up pollution control device patents by outside firms to keep those innovations under wraps. In short, if these charges were true, millions of motor vehicles were produced without known pollution control technology, meaning that the smog destroying public health and causing crop and property damage was totally avoidable. The companies denied it, of course claiming that it was, quote, industry cooperation and joint research to ensure technological advance.
2: As they send Cousin Greg to go shred all those documents.
0: (laughs) Dude, nice. This was huge breaking news for American citizens, but not for those in the know. Officials in the L.A. Air Pollution Control District had been questioning these same automakers on the industry's lack of progress since the early 1950s. And by January 1965, the chief air pollution control officer for the district, one S. Smith Griswold, (laughs) drafted a resolution for the L.A. County Board of Supervisors to specifically request the U.S. Attorney General to take legal action to prevent the automakers from, quote, further collusive obstruction.
2: You know, sometimes you, a lot of times you meet people with two first names. That guy has two last names.
0: (laughs) This is some vintage corruption, collusion back then. I feel like corruption is it's still very crushing today, obviously, but... But you have to get more creative and, like,
2: cover your bases, no paper trail. They didn't not, have email. Like back then, you could have, you know, a file cabinet with a bunch of secret <gasps> in it. Like,
0: and, they actually had to meet in person, right? They had to use real people to move these messages back and forth. Now they can just do emails, Zoom calls... It's too easy. Anyway, around this time, the Justice Department had already subpoenaed records from the industry, perhaps due to similar efforts by D.C. attorney-turned-superstar consumer advocate Ralph Nader. Unfortunately, though, lawsuits take time, and the smog in L.A. was getting worse. In January of 1967, Time magazine reported that, quote, The culprits producing the smog are Los Angeles County's 3.75
1: million autos, which produce (laughs) 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 12,420 of the 13,730 tons of contaminants released into the air over the county every day, in addition to nearly 10,000 tons of carbon monoxide. Autos exhaust 2,000 tons of hydrocarbons and 530 tons of nitrogen oxides daily. Enough to form a substantial brew of
0: irritating smog. Stop. That's a lot of goop in the air. Oh, that's a lot of goop. Uh. Meanwhile, back inside the Justice Department, attorneys handling the case were determining whether there should be criminal or civil indictments. Eventually, they landed on civil and filed the civil suit at an awkward time, just as President Johnson's administration was ending. Ooh, awkward. The new Attorney General, John Mitchell, would have to take over. And on September 11, 1969, the AMA's lawyer, Lloyd Cutler, was able to secure a deal on the smog conspiracy case. They settled by consent degree, which basically meant that the automakers got off scot-free. Those supporting the DOJ lawsuit were pissed. The consent decree was a clear win for the auto industry. Ralph Nader and others begged the DOJ to reconsider, and a group of 19 congressmen sent a letter to the Attorney General to express their concern that a full trial was necessary to show the public that corporate lawbreaking was no different than any other violation. The DOJ declined. Then there is a widespread formal campaign to upend the settlement in which thousands of individuals, congresspeople, and numerous municipalities petitioned a federal district court judge to not approve the decree. And it failed. Although the automakers essentially won this round, it's worthwhile to note that a flurry of legal actions related to the case continued through 1973. One California case called for the auto companies to take formal steps to eliminate smog, make contributions toward the creation of mass transit systems, and provide free emissions testing of automobiles. I think it's funny that there's
1: so much stuff based on like being like gentlemanly and like decent. And they're like, hey, let's all 19 of us get together and we're going to write this guy a letter. (laughs) And then at some point, a certain group of people in like the government were like, yeah, we don't give. (laughs) Like, I don't care if you like me. I don't care about your letter. I'm going to look out for the best interests of the people who support me.
2: Yeah, there's like this need to do this grand motion
1: yeah and they just rolled over everybody Like, but we used to do it this way and they're like yeah we're not going to do it that way anymore you (gasps) dork get in your locker
2: but for the congressman they're like okay whatever what's the next thing we're going to Yeah, we're just going to take
0: yeah well after Johnson it was uh, one uh, Richard Nixon in office so
2: slippery dick filthy dick (laughs) stinky dick
0: stinky
1: dick
2: Nixon Stinky Dick Nixon. (laughs) Sweaty Hog Nixon. (laughs) Sweaty Hog
1: Nixon, 69 with Roger Stone.
2: (laughs) By the first Earth Day in
1: 1970, air and water pollution ranked high on the list of voter issues. President Richard Slicky Dicky, Stinky Dick Nixon even devoted a chunk of his 1970 State of the Union to the subject and singled out the automobile industry as. Our worst polluter of the air. Wow, look at that.
2: That was really good. Thank
0: you. That was great.
1: I've been doing that impression for about 26 years. (laughs) On December 31st, uh, Halloween, 1970, (laughs) Nixon signed the Clean Air Act, a law that would allow the newly created Environmental Protection Agency to change the way that Americans would buy and drive cars. Hmm. According to the new law, federal and state regulatory agencies could officially set formalized and binding air quality targets. And boy, were some people mad. The first set of standards mandated that automakers cut hydrocarbon and oxides of nitrogen emissions by more than 50% by 1975, which effectively killed muscle cars. Then, because engines had to pass emissions tests, they were sealed with their carburetor adjusting screws either stripped off or hidden. In short, no more tinkering. In 1972, a writer for Car and Driver wrote Surely the government has laid off an imposing dose of garbled DC style civil service fat brain rules, directives, amendments, bulletins, acts, and advisories and subparagraphs. Much of it is unvarnished, self defeating nonsense. I'm cool and relevant. I'll do anything that's good. Things didn't get much better. Government testing showed that the first emissions controls were a total mess. Like I'm talking toddler eating spaghetti. (laughs) (laughs) You know, total mess. One in four new vehicles were too dirty to meet the new standards and the failure rate increased as the cars aged. Automobile companies complained that there was no way... They could create the technology necessary by 1975. And frankly, they were kind of right. The new cars sucked. We talk about it a lot. We made a shirt about it. This is like one of the worst times for American cars ever. This is the worst time for American cars ever. Technology forcing regulation basically ensured that automakers had to implement technology before it was fully finished. But the EPA and California couldn't be deterred. To comply with the EPA's regulation of exhaust emissions, most gasoline-powered vehicles starting in the 1975 model year were equipped with catalytic converters, and it helped. Tailpipe emissions of smog-causing pollutants plummeted from an average of 14 grams per mile in 1965 model cars to just 3 grams per mile in 1975. Dude, that's a lot.
2: Yeah, grams, you don't normally measure pollution in grams it's always like milligrams whatever
1: like a packet of sugar or like equal or splenda or whatever that's a gram if you dump that out that's one gram so like man every mile is dumping 14 of those every single car every single mile that is driving dumps 14 of those into the air that's insane But by 1981, the use of fuel injection, three-way catalytic converters, oxygen sensors, and early computers dropped the figure from 3 to 1.5 grams per mile. Or in layman's terms, Los Angeles mountains were slowly reappearing from the goop. The goop. (laughs) The goop. Though the path to implementing the catalytic converter was a huge mess, this hard-won safety measure is why... Angelinos still get to take cool pics of our cars on the two freeway, with the downtown Los Angeles skyline visible. Our cars today emit half as many grams of pollutants per mile as they did in the eighties. And that's good for mother earth. It still took years for the auto industry to get over the regulation. The internal turmoil over the catalytic converter can be best summed up in a 1975 New York times article. In it, Chrysler's emission expert, Charles Heinen, claims that the catalytic converter is Uh, a tremendous achievement on the part of all concerned, something the industry can really be proud of. Meanwhile, the vice president of Chrysler, Alan Loofborough, simply stated that it was the dumbest thing that ever happened to the automobile. (laughs) It's a money guy versus a science
2: guy. Agree to disagree.
1: I support a catalytic converter. I got a catalytic converter on all my cars.
2: Yeah, me too. I got buzzed by a a Honda Element that must have had it its cat cut off. Dude, it must have sounded so sick. Dude, a straight piped Element, dude.
0: Oh. <laughs> I'm deaf in one ear now. How are straight piped Hondas like the loudest cars? Louder than 350 Zs or I think so. There's this uh there's like a hatch or a, one of those boxy hatchback Civics. In my neighborhood, an EF, an EF, uh, with a straight pipe, and it it shakes my windows. It's insane.
1: I wonder if it has something to do with like the um, frequency, yeah, it's a much maybe. higher frequency.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think maybe you're right, like, James. Like
1: a Dodge or or a, you know the Z has a six cylinder. Maybe it like gets absorbed more by like the sidewalk and your
0: walls. I think I think you're right, and it's hilarious too because it's it's. It's also so loud for so long because they're going full throttle, but they're not going anywhere.
2: Yeah,
1: that's so funny, dude. This is great. This needs to go into your set. Yeah, guys, you ever notice uh, huh, Honda's? Aren't Honda's? This is your uh, you're your doing an hour at SEMA. <laughs> <laughs> you guys ever notice? Hour. You guys ever notice that straight pipe Hondas are the loudest? <sighs> Am I right? You know it. (laughs) And they last so long (laughs) because they're flooring it, and they're not going anywhere. (laughs) You notice it. You notice it. That's solid, dude. Who here has a car? (laughs) (laughs) You should do it with a puppet.
0: (laughs) Like one of those uh, uh, collision safety dummies.
1: Yeah, but like you... Yeah. like Jeff Dunham. He's Who's the real comedian. dummy here?
0: Me or you? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. But now, let's talk about seatbelts and your body.
1: Perhaps the most jarring safety controversy from today's vantage point is the battle against seatbelts. In March of 1982, Michigan Representative David Hollister introduced a seatbelt bill that levied a fine for not buckling up. The hate mail he received compared him to Hitler, <laughs> something Americans love to claim anytime they're told to do something they don't want to do, especially by a member of the government. You know what? I actually agree with this. <laughs> sh- like, you're not allowed to take money from me for endangering my own life. Get out of my business. The uproar over mandatory seatbelt laws was ideological. One of Hollister's colleagues called the bill a pretty good lesson in mass hysteria created by a corporate-controlled media. And warned that the government would outlaw smoking next, which they did. (laughs) Another said anyone who voted for the bill should be recalled. Over seatbelts? To explain, let's backtrack a bit. At the time, only 14% of Americans whoa regularly wore seatbelts. With most claiming they were uncomfortable and restrictive, which honestly they probably were. The seatbelt wasn't standard equipment until the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the NHTSA, uh, the worst named group of like it's just the hardest
0: name to say. NHTSA, it's hard to say. Uh, well, they require lap
1: and shoulder belts in all new cars starting in 1968, even though automakers had started installing seatbelts in the 50s. Regardless. The Department of Transportation once estimated that seatbelts can reduce serious injury and death by 45 to 55%. In fact, of the 30,500 drivers and passengers who died in traffic deaths in 1983, less than 3% were wearing seatbelts.
0: There you go. That's all I need to hear.
1: Then in 1973, NHTSA pissed off the American people even more. They required all new cars to include a seatbelt interlock mechanism that prevented a vehicle from starting if the driver wasn't buckled, which is not good. That's
0: inconvenient. If you're in a horror movie. That is dangerous if you're in a horror movie, for sure.
1: Yeah, you got Michael Myers all up on your butt. You got to remember to put on your seatbelt and everything.
0: How ironic would that be, though, if uh, you escaped from Michael Myers without your seatbelt, but then ended up he crashing. into a tree. Yeah. I mean, that that happened in one of those movies. It's
1: definitely happened in one of the movies. Yeah. They made like 12 of them, yeah. There would also be a super annoying buzzing sound that warned drivers if they forgot to buckle up. This implementation perhaps predictably led to enormous political backlash. According to Jerry Masha, co-author of The Struggle for Auto Safety, uh, Congress received more letters from Americans complaining about the interlock mechanism. Than they did about Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre, the night Nixon infamously fired the government attorneys investigating his crimes. That's a very like um, '70s journalist, yeah, like slight, <laughs> yeah. They wrote more about the locking mechanism than Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre. Like, is like a uh, that's the '70s version of like. Yeah, well, Cheeto Hitler. (laughs) All right, bro.
0: Yeah, the journalistic (laughs) grievances have really fallen off.
1: And their elected leaders listened. The following year, 1974, Congress killed the mechanism and mandated that the buzzing sound that indicated an unlatched seatbelt uh, could only last eight seconds. NHTSA got back to work, and by 1977, they passed a rule that Detroit automakers had to install a passive restraint uh, which is a system that worked without driver intervention that would protect a crash test dummy from damage when hitting a wall at 35 miles per hour. The only options at the time were airbags and automatic safety belts, which was a front seat belt that ran along a track and automatically fastened when the door closed.
2: You ever have a car with one of those? Yeah, it's annoying.
1: Uh, yeah, my S13 had one. Really? Yeah. Huh.
0: Did you like it? Uh, no,
1: it's terrible. It's terrible. Cool. (laughs) Uh, They chose the automatic belts because it was much safer. JK, it was just cheaper. It was less safe. But then consumers argued uh, that the belts were unsafe in a car fire. So car makers added a release latch, rendering the entire belt ineffective. Hmm. They're workshopping it. Around this time, an actor from California became president. One of the biggest promises was the... One of the biggest promises was that of deregulation, including the auto industry. Mm. One of the first things that the Gipper did was rescind the NHTSA rule requiring passive restraints. Insurance companies sued the administration, and in a surprise Supreme Court ruling, the justices voted to block Reagan and enforce the rule. And this brings us back to 1982 and the Michigan law that inspired many concerned citizens to call their state rep Hitler. This seatbelt bill and the fine it would levy Was a huge effing deal. Primarily because Mission was the cradle of American car manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Thing is, even though the bill was unpopular, supporters estimated that 300 lives a year would be saved in Michigan. So Hollister had to start thinking outside of the box.
0: It's time to do some politics. Love it.
1: In order to gain popularity for the vote, Hollister set up a six foot tall slide at the Capitol for anyone who dared to zoom down for 30 plus feet at five miles per hour and then bang into a. The bottom. A feeling he compared to getting hit by the right
0: tackle of the Green Bay Packers. I would have chose, like, the Detroit Lions, because that's where he's from. No, dude, Bakhtiari, the pit bull.
1: (laughs) In another stunt, or what Hollister called public eye-openers, he and supporters demonstrated impact by dropping pumpkins on the Capitol grounds where they exploded. (laughs) He later said that this was meant to reflect uh yeah, the uh, force of a head hitting the windshield at uh, about five miles per hour. There, yeah. All these stunts were put on at lunch hour for maximum visibility.
2: That's a, uh, coincidentally, Billy Corgan was a child visiting the Capitol at that time. <laughs>
1: oh, I think one day I'm going to start a band and call it that. <laughs>
0: The world is a vampire. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know,
1: you know be, uh, they're voting against all these regulations because, uh, you know, at the, what are you going to do? At the end of the day, the, the world is a vampire. <laughs> it's set to
2: drain. Every single thing he says in this speech about safety is like a <clears throat> Smashing Pumpkins song.
1: Secret Destroyers.
2: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I had a Siamese dream where everyone was safe.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, like... Uh, Emptiness is loneliness. Uh, loneliness is cleanliness. Cleanliness <laughs> is godliness. And, uh, you know, God is empty, all right? Just like me. Just like me.
0: <laughs> wow, the thought of people perishing in an auto accident sure is filling me with some melancholy and infinite sadness. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, but I try and keep my head... Positive, you know, because today is the greatest day <laughs> yeah. I've ever
0: known. You <laughs> know? Safety is so much better than it was in 1979. <laughs> <laughs> I love them.
1: The fight for seatbelt regulation was officially on. And this time, the Michigan State Police added a box on the accident report forms to indicate if a person killed in a crash was wearing a seatbelt. And those results were often published in local newspapers. Hospitals posted signs outside of their emergency rooms that listed out how many people who weren't wearing seatbelts had died over the weekend. Jeez. Oh, my
0: God. Look, when it comes to stuff like this, like safety, I'm going to listen to what the hospitals want me to do.
2: I still think I'm going to do my own research.
0: People working in hospitals, that's their life. And they really are obsessed. They don't want people to die in front of them because watching someone die in front of you really sucks.
1: During the 1984 holiday season, a Michigan-based medical examiner even sent cards with horrifying photos of car wrecks to members of the state house who had voted against compulsory seatbelt use. One of the photos included a dead child whose skull was cracked open as well as a dismembered leg beside a wreck. It was brutal, but it was also the truth. Listen, this is lame. Don't do that. No, do that. No, don't do that. Why not? Put seatbelts in cars, but, like, don't, like, chill out. Everyone just needs to chill out. The controversy had reached a boiling point years in the making. Then the Department of Transportation Secretary, El- Elizabeth Dole, who's Bob Dole's wife, uh, he just died. Rest in peace, I guess. He came. They came up with a compromise. She issued a rule in 1985 that required automakers to install driver's side airbags in all new cars unless two-thirds of the states passed mandatory seatbelt laws by April 1st, 1989. This gave the automakers and the angry public four years to get used to the idea. This sounded good, but it ultimately wasn't a regulation. Cars already had seatbelts, so all the automakers had to do was convince states to pass mandatory seatbelt laws. Let the
0: lobbying begin. Ah, so they're like, hey, we can use the automakers' hesitancy. To put more equipment in the cars against them, against the states, basically. Well, like automakers were already doing it. They were, they already had the seatbelts, but the cost of putting more airbags in the cars was something that the automakers didn't want to contend with. Right. So that, then that would motivate them to lobby the states. Yep. Yep. Okay. Smart. Smart, but ultimately doesn't do anything. New
1: York was the first state to pass the mandatory seatbelt law, which annoyed Michigan rep Hollister, who wanted
0: it to be Michigan. He'd worked so hard. I mean. He set up all that, he had all that he spent all that time setting up those pumpkins, you know? Yeah.
1: In less than a year, seatbelt compliance in New York jumped to 70%, perhaps because the state decided to issue a $50 fine, which is about $130 today. New Yorkers were not happy about it. Uh the residents compared it to the government of Russia. <laughs> You're like if Hitler ran Russia. Yeah. <laughs> but it worked. Within the first month of the new law, between 63 and 76% of drivers stopped by police were abiding by the new state law. There you go. In 1984, two years after the Michigan Seatbelt Law was first introduced, the state seatbelt use was below 20%. After the law went into effect in July 1985... Seatbelt use rose to 60%. There you go. It then dropped down to 45%. Uh Uh-oh. Partly due to the culture war, but eventually leveled (laughs) out at around 94%. In 2014. What a roller coaster we just went through, gentlemen. The University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute has calculated that 2,659 lives have been saved since the first bill was introduced. In the end, eight states shot down the mandatory seatbelt laws on ideological grounds, and the states who passed them didn't meet the standards established by Dole's rule. So April first, nineteen eighty nine came and went, and automakers had to install driver side airbags in all new cars beginning in the early nineties.
0: So it was all for naught. And as of I mean all- a lot of lives were saved. Two thousand, that's barely any. I probably think it's more, and also you have a
1: lot more people wearing seatbelts. And as of August 2020, New Hampshire is the only state without mandatory seatbelt law. Live free or die. As a result, <laughs> their seatbelt use hovers around 70% instead of 90% nationally. That's funny. I'm from New Hampshire. We've got the lowest seatbelt use rate in the country. Overall, according to NHTSA's most recent statistics, wearing seatbelts saved $50 billion in medical care, lost productivity, and other injury related costs, whereas deaths and injuries from not wearing seatbelts
0: cost $10 billion in 2010. Would you like to guess the state with the highest fatalities per 100,000 of population? Florida. Florida. No. Texas. New Hampshire. Not New Hampshire. New Hampshire is actually pretty low. Montana.
2: Close. South Dakota. <laughs>
0: A little less close, North Dakota. No, Oklahoma. Uh, it's, it's Wyoming oh. with uh, twenty five point four deaths per one hundred thousand population, which is significantly higher than the next highest one, which is Mississippi with twenty one point six. Well, well, in Wyoming they got those big old ramps on the highway. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. They, it's kind of boring driving across that state, so they put <laughs> yeah, those jumps. Yeah. yeah, they put
1: jumps and loops. Yeah, I forgot about that.
0: Yeah, they added those in like 2001 and they've got deaths have gone way up. That explains it. Yeah. California, where we're we're at is nine point one. Now, D.C. is pretty low, obviously. But anyway, um, I thought that was interesting. All right. Progress is slow. It always is and always will be. As the seatbelt controversy showed us, it's a specific kind of difficulty to implement and enforce laws for public good, especially in a free society. The argument wasn't that seatbelts didn't work. It was that vast swaths of the public were tired of government intervention. But even though the widespread criticism of government regulation is not only understandable, but somewhat justified, should that criticism extend to issues of public safety or environmental protection? Automakers were opposed to the implementation of the catalytic converter. But it wasn't just because of the cost, even though that was like 95% of it. They were ultimately afraid that their vehicles would hit the assembly line with a half-baked, unverified piece that didn't really affect the drive of the car. Yes, all roads ultimately lead to profit. But maybe, somewhere in their dark mechanical hearts, they wanted to make sure they could provide the very best for their customer. I don't really think I agree with that. (laughs) As we said, every time I talk about the, the rise of Japanese companies over here in the U.S., they just made a better car, and they were able to do it more economically than we were. We were just being lazy, I think, to a point. Anyway, fundamentally, we can all agree that safety is important, even if we can't agree on what that looks like. So, wear your seatbelt, folks.
1: Yeah, I totally support wearing a seatbelt, 100%. Yeah, you should. Um, yeah, definitely.
2: I, I would say buy a seatbelt. I uh, Really? I was driving, I mean, I probably would have been fine, maybe a little bit more banged up, but I was driving in my grandpa's 92 Buick Skylark with a bunch of friends goofing off. And I took a turn at 35 miles per hour and it turned out to be like one of those, it looked like it was, you know, like a 90 degree turn, but it was like cut back a little bit more and I started to understeer a ton. Oh, nice. And I found myself going towards a house, uh, with like a living room (laughs) huge window (laughs) and i i i I popped over the curb and turned at the last second to smash into the tree in front of the yard so that i didn't go into the house and that was 35 miles per hour and like for a week afterwards i was i had like ptsd every time i would like take a right turn in the hallway at school or something i would i'd be like oh and then i had like a gigantic seatbelt bruise across my chest and stuff no one was hurt uh Dude, you probably would have been <laughs> f-ed up without
0: that seatbelt.
2: Oh, totally. And yeah, like the, it didn't have airbags though. What year was it? 92. Hmm. It should have had airbags, right?
1: Maybe they passed it in 89 and it took a couple years to implement.
2: Yeah. Anyways, I'm a, I'm a fan of seatbelts. I know they're kind of annoying.
0: Not even. I think like cars nowadays are so comfortable. It's like, come on.
1: Yeah, we support seatbelts here at Passgas. If you do or don't support seatbelts or anything else you just want to talk to us about, you can shoot us an email at passgas at donutmedia dot com.
0: Yeah, we have an email speaking of Uh, This one comes from John. Hey, guys, love the show. I listen every day to and from work every day. Wow. I remember a while back, James did a bumper to bumper episode on Grave Digger, the monster truck, as opposed to the profession. How about how about you guys do an episode about the history of monster trucks, how they started out as a sideshow attraction, grew into a legitimate sport with a points championship, and then deviated from that to become a carnage-filled spectacle we have today. Hope you guys have a great day. Keep it juiced. Thank you, John. I think that's a pretty obvious uh, topic there. Why don't you go and write that down, Thomas, on our uh topic suggestions there whiteboard our big old whiteboard with all the ideas on it
2: we did a wheelhouse on that and it's a really interesting story it's kind of just because of this one
0: guy uh the guy who did made a uh, Bigfoot yeah aren't all stories like that most of them just boil down to one guy wanting to do a thing right yeah
2: like uh, smashing pumpkins yeah yeah like Billy like
1: William Corrigan like William Corrigan <laughs> a young William Corrigan watching a safety
0: demonstration <laughs> yeah and he wanted to do a thing if you have a if you want to do a thing and send us an email email us at Pascas at donutmedia.com Thank you very much thank you boys for uh, sticking through this show follow Joe at Joe G. Weber follow James at James Pumphrey send him some love. He's had a busy week this week. Oh, shut up. (laughs) Follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Big thank you to our producer, Thomas Willette and Gavin Kinzel. And our writer this week, who did this one? Christina Felski. Christina Felski, thank you very much. Uh, I had a lot of fun, guys. You sure did, James. (laughs) Me too. All right. (laughs) Be kind. See ya. Later, dudes. Goodbye.